I want our minds today to be fixed around one particular question. How would you act if a life-changing event was certain to happen, but you didn't know when? How would you act if you knew that a life-changing event would happen without a shadow of a doubt? You knew, but you didn't know when. What would you do? Well, I want you to think about that question when I ask you a second question. How would you act if you knew beyond a shadow of the doubt that Jesus was coming tomorrow? Okay? One, there's an event that's certain to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. Second, an event that is certain to happen and you know when it's going to happen. One, Jesus is coming, but I have no idea when. Two, Jesus is coming, and I know he's coming tomorrow. Now just think about those two things. And ask yourself, would you act any differently? Would you act any differently if you knew he were coming tomorrow for certain? As opposed to if you didn't know whether he was coming tomorrow or at some other time. Okay? Let's just let those two questions sink in our heads for a little bit because I want to come back to them at the end of our time. Notice that we've been focused on establishing two things throughout these last several messages on Mark chapter 13. The first thing that we've been trying to establish conclusively is that Jesus will come. He will. He wants us to be so certain of this fact that he confidently pronounced heaven and earth will pass away. Everything that we take most for granted. The sun coming up in the morning, he said that's going to pass away. The sun going down in the afternoon, he said, yep, that's going to go away. The law of gravity that binds us to the earth and regulates everything about how we act, all of the natural laws of motion and physics and science, he says, all those will pass away. They're not stable. They're not certain. But my words will not pass away. My word is certain. And what do I say? I will come again. So Jesus is telling us throughout Mark 13 there's something utterly certain and stable. But notice what else are we saying? You don't know when. It is utterly certain as to its happening. It is absolutely uncertain as to when it will happen. And I want you to notice this again as we look at Mark 13 and pick it up with me in verse 32, will you? If you have your Bibles open with us this morning, take a look at verse number 32. Jesus, speaking of his second coming, says, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. Notice that he says, that day and that hour. Do you know what that tells me about the coming of Jesus? It's going to happen in a specific day. It's going to happen on a specific hour. It's going to happen on a specific minute. And it's going to happen on a specific second. He didn't just say that day. He said that day and that very hour. 
Now let that reinforce how certain that event is. That God knows not only the day when Jesus is going to return, but he knows the hour. But notice what else he says. Of that day and that hour knows no man. No one knows when that day and that hour will happen. You say, okay, fair enough. Notice how he wants to reinforce the certainty of our uncertainty, if you'll just forgive me. The certainty of our uncertainty. Notice what he says. No, no man knows this. Not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Do you know what Jesus was saying as he sat on outside the city of Jerusalem talking to three of his disciples about this event? I'm sorry, four of them. We shouldn't forget Andrew. Four of his disciples, he's talking to them about these events. He says, not even I know the day and the hour when I am coming. Does that strike you as a little bit odd? Is that consistent with your view of, of who Jesus was here on earth? That he could say, I don't know the day or the hour when I'm coming? Well, read Philippians 2, and it'll make a little bit more sense. When Jesus says that even, when it's said of Jesus that even though he, he found it not robbery to be equal with God, being equal with God wasn't something he was snatching at, like he was, he was, he was robbing something that wasn't his. No, it was his. He was equal with God. He was co-existent with God from eternity. Though he was equal with God, yet what? He humbled himself. Literally, he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of his eternal glory. He emptied himself of all the, the complete use of his divine attributes. You say, how could Jesus not know when he was coming? Because he became fully man. That's why. And he said, God, I'm going to leave this with you when I go down to be a man, to be the mediator between God and man. He literally put aside all, um, he put aside that aspect of his divine knowledge. And he was literally fully man, like you and I. He said, I don't know while I sit here today, I don't know what that day and that hour is. Now you ask me, you say, well, Pastor Peter, does he know now? Now that he's ascended back up to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God, does he know now? I'm just going to have to guess here, but I think the answer is yes. Now just, there's one clue in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples, right before he ascends up to heaven, but after his resurrection, the disciples say, tell us, are you going to restore the kingdom again to Israel? Are you coming now to rule and be the king, just like we've been waiting for? And what does Jesus say to them? He said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. Did he say, boys, it's not for us? He said, it's not for you. Maybe I'm reading too much into that. I think Jesus knew at that point when he was coming, and I believe that he knows now. But again, we won't be dogmatic about it where the scripture isn't clear. All we know that is that this time, Jesus says, I don't know. And he said, not even the angels know. The ones surrounding the throne of God, ministering to him, not even they know. Now, do you understand in light of this how absurd it is? for various cults and various people to say, Jesus is coming in this year. Jesus is coming now. 
John Calvin had this wonderful line where he basically said, why do you people creeping about on planet Earth think that you know something that not even the angels up in heaven around God's throne do? Who do you think you are? And indeed, it has been a sign of virtually, of, of, of cults around the world that they think they know what the angels don't know. You know the Jehovah's Witnesses? The ones who come and knock on your doors? Even some of the ones that are there today knocking on your door may not know what their cult, what their false religion has taught about Jesus coming. Throughout the years, throughout the centuries, they have said over and over again when Jesus was coming or a certain eschatological event like Armageddon was happening. They said it was going to happen in 1878, something significant was happening. In 1881, in 1914, in 1918, in 1925. In fact, you can look it up. In 1975, the Jehovah's Witnesses believed and confidently affirmed the Armageddon was happening in 1975. And then do you know how they've reinterpreted in later years when it didn't happen? A bunch of people left the church because it didn't happen. In fact, I, re I read an, uh, uh, a note from a sociologist who was interviewing one of these guys, and this guy said, I thought it was all coming to an end in 1975. I didn't get an insurance policy. We didn't buy houses. I hardly wanted even to sign my kids up for school. The end was coming. And then what happened? 1975 came, and the end didn't come, and he said, I'm out of here. And you know what the Jehovah's Witnesses say? God was just purging the wheat from the chaff. He was really seeing who the true believers were. No, he was, if anything, exposing who the gullible were. The ones who continued going over and over. And again, you might ask the next Jehovah's Witness who comes by your door about those failed prophecies. Why? Well, look at Joseph Smith and the Mormons confidently asserting when Jesus would come. Look at in the past the Seventh-day Adventists confidently asserting Jesus would be coming around this time. It is, it is an absolute deception. He is coming in this day. No, he is not. Mark chapter 13 says, you don't know the day or the hour. Even the angels don't. Look at verse 33. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. What's he saying? The event is certain to occur. And you don't know when it's going to happen. So therefore what? He says here in verse 34, 33, Take ye heed, watch and pray. The title of the message this morning is simply this. Alert for his coming. Alert for his coming. How should you act if you are certain that Jesus is going to come, but you do not know when? You must be alert for the day of his coming. Or as he says, take ye heed, watch, and pray. What I want to focus on this morning is the parable that Jesus gives us in verses 34 through 37. Because this parable is going to answer the question, how should you act when you know Jesus is coming, but you don't know when? How should you act? Well, notice he's going to tell us a story to explain exactly how we should act. Will you look with me again at verse 34? He says, for the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey. Now what he's saying is, I'm going to tell you boys what it's like. Take heed, watch, and pray. It's like this. A man takes a far journey, and notice, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, literally his slaves, 
And every man his work, and commanded the porter, that's the doorkeeper, the doorman, to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, that's in the evening, or, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, that's the rooster crowing. In this day and age, it would come halfway, usually between midnight and the sunrise, the, cock, the rooster would crow, or in the morning. There seems to be an allusion to the Romans who had four periods of evening. They had the evening from 6 to 9 p.m. They had midnight from 9 to 12 p.m. They had the rooster crowing, the first watch of the morning, and from, from midnight to 3 a.m. And then they had the sunrise. They had that period, the dawn from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., these periods of the morning. These would have been ones that they would have all been familiar with. And Jesus is saying, watch, because you don't know it could happen in any of these periods, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Notice in this parable, first of all, there's a departure. A departure. Will you notice with me in verse 34? It's like a man taking a far journey who left his house. He said, this is what it's like. It's like a guy who owns a really big estate. Now, it's hard for us to come into these things today because most people in our society don't have household servants. They don't have doorkeepers watching their front door. I mean, I think these fascination that we have today with these, this, the British time period of the 16, 17, 1800s, why do shows like Downton Abbey become so popular? Why do shows like showing these old-time estates? Because the thought of having servants and having butlers and doorkeepers, that's fascinating to, to Americans today. We're not familiar with that. But, but these Jews of Jesus' day would have known, oh, the rich guy, yeah, he lives right down the street. And he's got a whole household staff. And when he leaves for a period of time, he sets the doorkeeper, the one who, who has the only door into the property, he says, watch out, I'm coming back. That's the picture that he's inviting them into, and they would have known. They said, oh, absolutely. So the picture here is that the head of the house leaves. But notice what he says, it's for a far journey, literally a long journey. How long? Well, how long is long? He doesn't tell you. He just says it's long. People say, well, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Almost 2,000 years after he ascended to heaven. Well, he told you he was going to take a long journey. It was a long journey. He just didn't tell you how long, right? That's the idea. He told you it's going on a long journey. And he left his house. Now, notice again a couple things here. It's absolute definite that he's coming back. What were they waiting for? Him to return. That's why he said to the doorman, watch, I'm coming back. But it's absolutely uncertain as to when he will. You need to see that Jesus was preparing his disciples, his own disciples, for his imminent coming. We talked about this a little bit last week. But remember what the disciples, including some of these who heard Jesus' words for the first time, remember what they heard when Jesus ascended up to heaven in Acts chapter 1. He goes up into heaven. They're standing, staring up into the sky with their jaws open and probably a little bit of drool coming out of their mouth thinking, what on earth? What's going on? And suddenly, what do they see? Well, 
They looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Why are you staring up into heaven like that? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. You saw him go up into the sky and the clouds. He's going to come down one day. What would they have all thought? We're waiting. We're ready. We're not just going to sit here gazing up into the sky. Jesus told us this parable is a departure. He's going to come back. We just don't know when. Secondly, notice the delegation that was involved. The delegation that was involved in verse 34. So this man leaves his house, and what does he do? He gives authority to his servants. He gives to every man his work and commands the porter or the doorkeeper to watch. First of all, notice he gave them authority. It's a question of authority. Now again, if you were thinking of delegating these household chores, you'd know exactly what this would mean. Jesus wasn't talking about an era, an era of cell phones. He wasn't talking about an era of email. Hey, household servants, I'm just checking in on how everything is going. You have any questions for me? Shoot me a text if anything comes up and I'll give instruction. Now, what does he say? He gives them authority. In that day, you left your house for a long period of time, and what did you tell the household servants? Who's in charge? You're in charge. With whose authority? Your authority? Now, whose authority? My authority. Do you know this is absolutely true in everything we see around us today? My wife and I and our children went to Target yesterday. We went to pick out some school supplies. And you know, as we walked around Target, do you know there were people busily working around? They're setting up things. They're restocking shelves. They're answering questions from people about where they're going to find this or that. How, why are those people acting in that way? What authority are they acting under? Are they acting under their authority? Like, I'm the, the, the shelf stalker at Target. I'll tell you what to do. No, what are they acting under? They're actually acting under the authority of the CEO. Did the CEO show up at the quarry in, 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 uh, on New Brighton Boulevard? in northeast Minneapolis and say, all right, here's where I want all these things to get set up. Here's what's going to go on the, the shelf for the backpacks for the kids. I want these kind of erasers to be put out over here. We'll get everything in place. Is that what the CEO did? Of course not. Who did it? The employees did it. Why? Because their boss told them to do it. Why? Because his boss told them to do it. And her boss told her to do it. And all the way up until it's the, C it's the CEO's authority, right? And it's delegated down so someone can say, I know what to do. Why? Because this is exactly what I've been delegated to do. And this wonderful picture is that Jesus goes up to heaven and he gives us authority to do stuff. Like what? The stuff that he told us to do so we can be sure we're acting under his authority, not ours. What kind of stuff did he tell us to do? He said, go tell people that if they believe in me, their sins will be forgiven. Do you know you have authority to do that today? You have the authority from Jesus Christ himself to go into the world and say, if you believe on Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. And you're not talking on your authority, you're talking on his. Why? He gave you that authority. 
What other authority do you have? You have the authority to go to people, as it were, with tears streaming down their face and say, I'm telling you on the authority of Jesus that if you don't repent of your sins, you will receive the eternal judgment from God. And it's not your authority. It's his authority. You have the authority on behalf of Jesus Christ to go show love to the sick and to the dying. You have the authority from Jesus Christ himself to go and to exercise his authority in this world by confronting the demonic forces in our world, by standing strongly for his truth. Why? You have authority. You say, why? Because in Matthew 28, Jesus himself said, all Power, same word for authority here in Mark 13. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. Do you know, friends, every time we open up this tank over here and take down this side wall and baptize someone on the profession of faith in Jesus Christ, we're doing it on his authority. It's his job. Oh man, what a precious thing we have who are part of the kingdom of God in this world. To do things and exercise authority because he told us to and we have the confidence that he's the one who's standing behind it. Wow. His authority. He delegated his authority to us. But not only that, he doesn't just talk about authority. He gave authority to his servants, but also look, and every man his what? His what? His work. So you have authority and you have activity. Now notice two things there. He gave to every man. Now that's not talking about man as opposed to woman. It's talking about every person. Every servant. His or her work. Everyone works. Let's break those two things down just really quickly. What does he say about everyone Every single one of his servants gets a job to do? Are you a servant of Jesus Christ today? Then you have a job to do. You have work to do. Do you know I fear we miss this today in our world? Even in our Christian churches today, people come in on Sunday morning and they think their work for Jesus is coming and inhabiting a pew for an hour on a Sunday morning. What am I doing for Christ? Well, I go to church. What am I doing for Christ? Well, I listen to the sermon. What do I do for Christ? Well, well, I sing a hymn. No, no, no. Jesus said, I came to give everyone work. And do you know what that word work means? It literally means toil. It literally means activity, like you're being active doing something. So don't be, don't be mistaken. If you're a Christian here, God gave you work to do. Jesus delegated activity for you to perform. It's not enough to say, okay, I'm just sitting back and others are doing it. No, absolutely not. In fact, listen to what 1 Corinthians 12 says. He, he, he builds on this idea to say, not only has God given work for people to do, he's given them the ability to do it. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7 says. But the manifestation of the Spirit... So the way the Spirit shows himself or reveals himself in your life. Are you a Christian? Then you have the Spirit of God in you. How does the Spirit of God show himself in your life? Here's how. That manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all or to profit others. 
How does the Spirit show up in your life? By you working to bless others. That's the manifestation of the Spirit that He's given you. And He's given it to everyone. He goes on to say that in all these different ways that we bless other people by the manifestation of the Spirit, but all these works that one and the selfsame Spirit, the Spirit is the one who's working in everyone, dividing to every man severally or individually as he will. He says, here's some Spirit, here's a manifestation of the Spirit for you, here's a manifestation of the Spirit for you, here's a work of the Spirit for you. Every single one receives it so that they can bless or profit others. Let me pause for a moment here, friends, and ask, what's your work today? What's the activity that God's given you to do? We should ask ourselves that question. You mean God has something for me to do? Yes, and only you. No one else can do what God's given you to do. No one else can minister to the same people that God has given you to minister to in the way that He's given you to minister to them. He has given you something to do. What has He done? He's given us authority. His authority. What has He done? He's given us activity. The specific individual activity that He wants all of us to do. And what's the third thing mentioned here? He, told, he tells the porter or the doorman to watch alertness. Authority, activity, alertness. He says, by the way, because I'm coming back, you there at the front door, be watching. I'm going to show up and you don't know when. This is exactly what he's getting at when he says, take heed, watch, and pray. We are to have a spirit of watchfulness, a spirit of readiness, a spirit of of alertness. Notice all these things Jesus himself is delegating to his house, his church, his kingdom. So notice first of all again a, a departure. Is Jesus coming? Yes he is. When is he? We don't know. A delegation. I've given you authority. I've given you activity. I've given you a command to be alert. So third, what's our danger? What's the danger? Jesus himself tells us what the danger is. Will you look with me in verse 35? Watch ye therefore, you be alert, for ye know not when the master of the house comes, at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning. No, notice verse 36. Lest coming suddenly, that's unexpectedly, he find you. You ever been asleep on the job, friend? Do you know in most of our jobs, if you're asleep on the job, you can be fired? It's gross negligence. It's a dereliction of duty. In fact, sometimes that has greater consequences than others. I was reading about a, an event, maybe some of you remember it, in the 1980s. A plane was coming in, uh, a, commer uh, a, a commercial plane was coming in from, uh, into Russia, into an airport in Russia. And the the uh, person who was at the air traffic control had directed some maintenance workers to go up and dry off the runway because there had been heavy rains and he fell asleep. And he never gave the order for those maintenance workers to clear the runway as this large plane with, filled with passengers was coming into land. And that plane crashed into those maintenance workers and I think well over 100 people perished. Someone fell asleep. In fact, in 2011, at Reagan International Airport in Washington, D.C., 
There was a period of time when the air traffic control center was unmanned because there was only one air traffic controller on the job and he fell asleep. And in that time, two airplanes landed and by the grace of God, they did not crash. The consequence was, 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 was missed, thankfully. But apparently they changed the rules. Now there must be two people in an air traffic control station at all times in these major airports to, to ensure against one person falling asleep on the job. We, we know that sense of falling asleep on the job. Now is the problem falling asleep? No, we all sleep. We all need to sleep. We have rules in those jobs about how often you have to sleep as opposed to working. Is the problem with falling asleep? No, what's the problem? It's falling asleep when? On the job. That's the problem. So what is Jesus saying here when he says, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping? Well, think about, put yourself back in that picture. The, the head of the household shows up. He's going to show up at any possible time. He's been gone for a long time. He shows up. And what does he expect? He expects the porter to be opening the door and saying, Hey, we've been ready for you. We've been waiting for you. He expects to walk into the house. And what's he going to find this servant doing? Not sleeping on the job. Doing what he told him to do. What's he going to expect that servant in the kitchen to be doing? Preparing the meal that the master told him to be ready to be doing. What's he going to be expecting that servant to be doing? To be doing her job and to be doing his job. What's he talking about? Is he really talking about sleeping? He's talking about sleeping on the job. And when we understand that, we're going to be able to answer the question of how Jesus expects you to act when you're waiting for an event that will certainly occur, but that you don't know when. What does Jesus mean here then when he says he doesn't want to find you sleeping? Well, notice one thing that I think is very significant. How might we be tempted if, to act if we think Jesus truly is coming at any moment? Well, you might be like some of these cults have done. Is Jesus coming soon? Yes. So let's sell our house. Let's get rid of our insurance policy. Let's go sit on a mountain somewhere and wait for Jesus to come down out of the clouds. We will be ready. No. No, not at all. Did Jesus command these servants, when I come, I want you to be sitting out on the front porch waiting for me? I'll walk in and there'll be cobwebs all over the house. Nothing will have been cleaned. The, mouse, the mice will have taken over the, the kitchen. Nothing, no one's going to be, you've been all sitting and waiting for me. No, that's not what he said. What is he saying? He's saying, I want you to do what I told you to do. What, you will be ready for me to return when you are doing the job I gave you to do. Do you want to be ready for Jesus to come back? then do what he gave you to do, and you'll be ready. Do you want to be alert for when Jesus comes back? Then today, when you leave this church, go carry out the activity he gave you to carry out, and you'll be ready. You see, what is this? It's a question of faith. It's a question if you truly believe that Jesus is coming back and that he gave you something to do and that because he could come back at any time, you want to be doing what he told you to do. So you're ready. 
You know how encouraging this is? It's encouraging in this regard. The activity he gave you to do is not the activity he gave me to do. Some of you say, I don't know what I could be doing for Jesus in, to, to, to be ready for Jesus to come back. I don't think I have anything to do. You should see my, how, drudge, how, how full of drudgery my day-to-day -day life is. I'm a young mom. All I do is the same thing over and over again. Well, did Jesus give you to do that? Then do it, and you'll be ready for him to come back. You say, you don't understand how boring my job is. I do the same thing over and over and over and over. I, I, I don't see what possible good there could be. Did Jesus give you that job to do? Did he put those people around you at your workplace to be a light for him and to show other people that way? Then keep on doing that no matter how boring it is, and you'll be ready when he comes. You say, I'm stuck in a home or a nursing home or of some kind. What do I have to do? You'd be surprised. I was listening to a preacher, and he was telling me about this, telling the, 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 in this sermon about this 90-year-old man. This 90-year-old man who was in a nursing home, and he went to see him and pray with him. And this man told me, he says, I tell everyone I come into contact with here about Jesus. And in fact, they, 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 they bowed and prayed together. And the, the pastor said there was this 95-year-old woman who was overhearing their prayer, and she bowed her head and prayed. And she said, and after they finished praying, she spoke of that 90-year-old man that he prayed out loud before every meal. And she said, every time I, I'm around and I hear him do it, I bow my head with him and pray. Do you think that 90-year-old man in that nursing home was ready for Jesus to come? Why? Because he was doing what God gave him to do. He was taking his resources and his talents and his place, and he was just being faithful there. And the point is this, wherever you are, no matter how menial your tasks seem to be, if Jesus gave you that activity to do, be faithful in doing it, and you'll be ready for him to come back. But do you know, for me, it's also challenging. It's also convicting. Because do you know the ways in which we sleep? Do you know the ways in which we're not ready? Is when, frankly, we're putting far too much of our effort and activity on the things Jesus never gave us to do. On the distractions, not the duties. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's not a time to rest. I'm not saying there's not a time for hobbies. We can glorify God wonderfully through our hobbies. But you know what happens sometimes? The things that become the diversions for me become the distractions from the kingdom of God. The things that are what God gave us for rest suddenly can completely reroute us from doing what God wants us to do. Instead of holding them in their place and, and using them to glorify God, we instead take them for ourselves. And we're utterly distracted from the things, the main things, that God has told us to do. You know, when we get in that, in that mood, in that mode, we're going to be sleeping when he comes back. He's going to come back and he's going to say, are you doing what I asked you to do? And we're going to say, I'm sorry, I got a little distracted. Let me encourage you today, friends. Are you sleeping on the job? What has God given you to do? In what ways has Jesus said, you keep on doing this until I come back? Are you doing it? One of the great struggles in life is, as one author said, Stephen Covey, he wrote the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He, he said this wonderful thing that I've thought of from time to time. He said, do you know what the main thing is? 
the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. The main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. Why? Because so often we don't keep the main thing the main thing. And you know that's exactly what the devil wants for your life? He wants you to look at the main thing that God has, has given you to do, and he wants to say, get distracted over at these small things. Don't seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Focus on all these other distractions and diversions. Turn with me for just a moment to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. This is Jesus' sermon. It's the same sermon. Luke gives us another picture of what he commands. Notice in verse 34 of Luke chapter 21. Jesus says, And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged or overwhelmed with surfeiting. It's kind of a party mentality. And drunkenness and cares of this life. Cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares, unexpectedly. You know, friends, today there are literally millions of people around this country who are utterly distracted from the most important question in life. Are you ready to meet Jesus? Because of their own deception, because of the cares of this life, because of their party mentality, because of their live it up, you only have one life to live, you might as well enjoy it, and they are going to miss what is the most central main thing. Are they ready to meet Jesus Christ? Again, friends, what did Jesus give you to do? He gave you to be a dad if you're a dad. He gave you to be a mom. He gave you to be an employee. He gave you to be a husband or a wife. Do that. Be consistent with it. Do it for Jesus' sake. What else did he give you to do? He gave you to be a light to all the people in your neighborhood and in, around your employment and in your school. He gave you that. So keep on doing that. And as we close in our series of Mark 13, I want to come back to the question that I asked you earlier. If you knew that Jesus was coming back and you didn't know when, how would you act? And if you knew Jesus was coming back and you did know when, how would you act? Do you know the reality? Those two things should be the same. There's a story of John Wesley that I'll close with. John Wesley, the great preacher, Methodist preacher. I'm sure it's highly embellished because I looked it up online and I saw, different, I saw different versions of it. But the story's so wonderful, I'll tell you. The story is that John Wesley was out doing itinerant preaching. And someone asked him, what would you do if you, tomorrow if you knew that Jesus was coming then? What would you do tomorrow if you knew Jesus was coming then? And you know what the story goes? John Wesley took out his little calendar, his little appointment book. He opened it. He looked at it. And he said, this. This is what I would be doing if I knew Jesus were coming tomorrow. You know, friends, do you know what's important for us to do? We should take out our calendar book. 
And we should look out what's on our calendar tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And if we knew that's the work that God was giving us to do to glorify him, do you know what we can say? Lord, I'm just going to do that. And then I'm going to be ready for whenever you come.